Um, it's not very often that I, <laughs> that I jump from leading worship to teaching. I really try not to let that happen, but it kind of happened that way. So um, I'm not used to having to have this much breath and words. So I'm like already breathing deep, like, oh boy, another word's coming. Okay. So uh, <laughs> if you guys haven't noticed before in the bulletin, um, on the back, there's a bit of a vision statement here. I'm going to read it to you because this is, this is my belief. This is why I get up week to week to week to teach the word to you. This is why um, I sometimes, well, in convenient hours, try to make it happen where I can have something prepared for you. You know, I, this is why we do this. And sometimes, well, let me just read it. So here it is. God, God speaks. God speaks. He spoke at creation. He spoke through Jesus. And he speaks through the Bible. Because God desires a relationship with us. Therefore, Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks centers around the Bible. We believe the Bible reveals the nature of God and teaches us how to have a relationship with him. Therefore, we teach the Bible as his word every week. We study its context, history, and literature in order to obey its message. We preach this message with our lives. Now, this is a bit of faith on my part to say this, but we preach this message with our lives, both gathered in worship here and scattered in community. That's where I have to have faith that you're doing that. God speaks. Oh, and then it ends, because it is written. That's why we teach the Bible. It's written. God speaks, and it's written. And we believe he still speaks through the Bible. I had only discovered this maybe four years ago. Actually, it was almost exactly four years ago. I have, since I was about 18... Uh, given my free time and then school time and then professional time and extra time as well into learning the word of God. And when I say the word of God, I'm referring to the Bible. I've been a student of this Bible for a long time and in very deep ways. Um, I've also been a student alongside of that I've been a student of how to communicate the Bible. Like, the, the, they call this, um, um, no, I didn't, one of those H words, not hermeneutics, but it's uh, homiletics. Uh, homiletics is the art of how to communicate the Bible, how to preach. So then I, I start studying that, and I've, I've kind of been just a gradual, like, on and on basis. Like, a lot of people sometimes think that I'm kind of, um, well, there's not a lot of thought or rhyme or reason to what I do. There actually is a lot of organization behind the controlled chaos. Um, there, there's a lot of intentionality. And, you know, some people don't like my approach, and some do. But listen, I'm not just trying to be myself. I'm very open to God helping me become the teacher-preacher he wants me to be. Um, I, now, if I had my, well, yeah... So I'm very open to just studying and what's the best way. So I've been a student of God's word. I've been a student of how to say his word. Um, but only four years ago, I devoted myself to becoming a student of one more area. And that's the voice of God. 
So how do I, so there's the word of God, how I say the word of God, but then there's the voice of God. That Elijah heard, the prophet heard, only when things got quiet. And it was called the still, small voice that spoke to him. So I can come to the Bible every week. And I can study its words, and I can, analy- I can analyze its meaning, and I can study, I have a little bit of experience in the original languages. I can study that. I can put together a great package for how to say it. But it's just words unless I'm getting from it to the voice behind the words. See, this word doesn't change. This word is here, and it's there for us to look at, read, study, probe. But there's a voice behind these words that is active and living. And it may not speak from the same verse the same way every day because you are growing and changing and God is speaking differently to your context. So only four years ago did I say, hey, I need to be a student of listening to this voice and letting that be part of how I teach the Bible too. Brittany and I were going through a really rough time about four years ago. Um, Just some mayhem with... Um, people we thought we could trust that really showed us they, we can't trust them. And we were very hurt. And so we went on this journey to Montana, uh, uh, Whitefish, Montana. Actually, if you know my sister, she, she used to be up in that area. Um, she's now, of course, in Uganda. But we went up there, and it, uh, 60 acres of untouched forest. That's where this property sits. And we just had... A ball out there. Um, and the first day on that trip, so we're feeling betrayed, we're feeling lost, we're feeling kind of like, who are we? Um, people have been criticizing my teaching, and I'm just like, okay, God, I want to be who you want me to be. So we go out there and just instantly, something about nature, un, uh, unmolested by man, was just powerful. And so my first morning there, a lot happened that week, but my first morning, this is what I wrote in my journal. I just looked back on this and remember, I, I want to share it because I need to share it to myself. Um, I was in Isaiah chapter 50, and it's, it's, verse 4 says this, Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So I wrote, part of this trip is to heal an ear that seems hard of hearing God's voice. I hear a lot of voices, scholars, opinions, pastors, expectations, questions. That list can go on and on. But I want, once again, to be in tune and in harmony with the Spirit's voice. Then I will better discern the other voices. But most importantly, I want calling on the kind of preacher-teacher God wants me to be. I want health as a pastor, unhurried and contemplative. I want to know myself, the creation God has been forming in me. And as part of the above, particularly preaching, Isaiah 50 still stands out. This time, the first part. So the part before what I read to you. The Lord has given me the tongue 
of those who are taught, that I may sustain with a word him who is weary. I'll read that again. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may sustain with a word him who is weary. So I desire that my tongue speaks with an incredible depth because it speaks that which God himself teaches it. And as a result, the preached word will sustain him or her who is weary. This is how I must study, taught by God, and speak to sustain the weary. So this passage we come to, I had to share some of that personal journey because I was kind of um, thinking back on it myself. And we come to this passage where God speaks from Mount Sinai to Israel. And I was reminded of the power of his voice. And I want to bring you guys along with that. Now, we've been in Exodus. We're looking at how to move through the wilderness so that we can live in the promised land. So we can live with the spirit birthing fruit in our lives. We can live with his peace, being led by him. Most of us have tasted that, but we're kind of back and forth in the promised land in the wilderness. The wilderness is a confusing place. It's the person who's been saved, but um, kind of doesn't have direction in life and doesn't really feel a lot of God's power and presence. So we've been looking at this. How does Israel get through the wilderness? It's amazing. When you look at them, they are, we talk about the early church in Acts. They're the earliest church before that church. They go through the Red Sea, which was their salvation and baptism. They sing after they cross to the Red Sea, which we just did. They um, take communion, which was in the form of manna there. They're exercising trust in God to feed them what they need. Jesus then in John 6 says, they had manna, I'm giving my flesh and blood to you. So we take communion as part of our dependence on him on the way. Then in chapter 17, we saw Amalek came and attacked Israel and that Moses, as long as his hands were up in prayer, Israel defeated Amalek and pushed him back. But as soon as his arms began to drop, Amalek began to push Israel back and Moses needed other people to help him in his prayer life, to help his arms up. And then we saw the spiritual warfare below beginning to go in Israel's favor. So we need each other. We need fellowship and prayer. And now we come to the next stage of the wilderness. Israel comes to Mount Sinai, the mountain which Moses climbs up and sees God face to face. And God begins to speak what we call his law to Israel. So let's look at this. Oh, but let's not yet. Because there's a problem we have to solve first. Um, that is, so this, this coming to Sinai and having God speak, and they're congregating, right? They're coming around the mountain. And in a kind of strange way, we kind of, I know I'm like at your level right now, but sometimes we put the preacher up on a, a platform, and it's like we're gathered around. And it's like the word of God, like here, here's Moses, and here, the word of God's coming through and to us. And we're like, it's a picture of what we do in church. We're gathered around for the word of God. And this is, this picture of Israel there and God literally speaking sounds powerful and amazing and moving. Yet we so often come to church, 
we hear sermons, and you've probably heard a dozen or more in your lifetime. Uh, you might even hear several during the week and on the radio. And I don't know. I don't know where you guys are at with sermons. But sometimes it just does not feel very climatic. Sometimes it's like, oh, my gosh, again. Three points, a poem, and a prayer. <laughs> um, sometimes that's how it feels. But what I've discovered is sometimes... See, preachers have a hard job because they teach every week. Like we go to conferences and we hear people who are giving... This is their profession. They travel around giving maybe a dozen messages a year. And they have all kinds of time and resources to pull from. Pastors have to go every week. The well can get dried up very, very quickly. And so, obviously, pastors have a very hard job to, like, make something not boring week after week after week. Um, so, we come and we're like, oh my goodness, again, uh, same pattern. I know exactly, I heard that cliche before, in the world but not of the world. God's going to work all things together for good for those who love him. Like, all these things we're hearing over and over, like, okay. I, I had a youth tell me once, yeah, I don't really go to church because it's so predictable. I just want one time for a pastor to shock me. <laughs> well, how far do you want me to go with that? <laughs> um, so something happens where it's not really that dynamic and exciting. And sometimes we endure boring sermon after boring sermon. And I've listed a few that I've heard many times that I'm thinking of. Uh, there's the dictionary sermon where it feels like literally everything has to be defined. So verse 1, there's three definitions in there. We're going to parse the Greek and divide the Hebrew, and we're going to give you... And then, and then the next word, and now we've got to make... And everything has to be so specific. Now, some of us love that, but I'm just saying on a whole, the common person doesn't enjoy opening a dictionary as pleasure reading, and nor do we enjoy hearing the dynamic living word of God that's supposed to be speaking to us portrayed like a dictionary. Um, so sometimes we're bored by a dictionary message. Sometimes we're bored by an, uh, an autopsy message um, where they start dissecting things so closely and questioning things so much and bringing so much apologetics and argumentation to the text that you begin to wonder, well, is it alive or not? Are we trying to make, prove to ourselves that it's alive and sometimes we wonder, um, when things can get so cut and dry and black and white, there's no imagination or life in the preaching. We're like, so when did your Bible die? And sometimes we feel that in a sermon. So there's a dictionary, there's, there's the autopsy, there's the cable news anchor preacher. You know what I mean by the cable news? Um, a lot of like debating and shouting and opinions and politics and go get the world and like, oh my gosh, it's, it's apocalypse right now and a lot of like mayhem. Yeah, there's a lot of that sometimes. And look, there's times for that. But sometimes like, again, like what part of the world ticked you off this week? And then there is the terrorism message. We've heard this one. If you don't come to Christ... You will burn in hell forever, and you will scream in torment, wondering day after day after day for all eternity, why did I choose to come here? You could leave tonight and be killed, T-boned, on the highway, on the way out. You can, you can be eating dinner next week and choke on a chicken bone, and Pastor Mike and Brandon won't be able to do anything because we're worthless. Um, <laughs> So we hear that preaching too. And it's like all the time, it's like, it's basically terrorism. It's terrorize the people, or pardon the phrase, but it's, a, it's an old sermon slogan. Uh, scare the hell out of people. 
And that's a terrorism tactic. And I don't know that Jesus would have been very favorable of that tactic. Now, he did talk about judgment, but that was not his primary form of teaching. Storytelling was. But let's not go too far. Um, Then there's like the cotton candy where it's like good story, good joke, so suave. And they're like, God just loves you. And he just wants you to put your head down on a nice fluffy pillow tonight and be at peace. And and it goes on and on. Look, those are great. We sometimes need encouragement. But sometimes that's all that's there. It's like, okay, I've got a good diet of cotton candy. So these are like five um, of the kinds of sermons we hear. And they're good at times, and there's a place for some of those things. But sometimes what we get tired of is people get stuck in ruts. And we do the same thing over and over and over. And look, I'm being totally vulnerable with you, right? Like I'm showing you what God was showing me four years ago and why I'm trying, doing better at sometimes and worse at other times, to model and to do in my life. And then I know I'm totally saying things you're like, yeah, but you do that. I know that's very possible. So I know I'm totally being vulnerable, but I'm just trying to share with you what I see um, when I'm in the back seat or the front. So then let's look at Exodus 19, shall we, and see the sermon of Israel, their first from God. So we see in Exodus 19, there are three key parts I want to show to us. First, Uh, what God is doing to them. Second, the Ten Commandments he drops on them. And then third, their reaction to it. So, 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. Then there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Wow. So I did this for you. I liberated you from Egypt. And I'm bringing you to my mountain to tell you, this is your mission. You are to be priests to all the earth. Now, priests, kind of a creepy word for some of us. Um, So this is what it means. Not that they're going to go around with black robes, a big iron cross, and a white collar, or wear a big red tall hat. Not that. They are going to do what priests do in the temple. In the temple, priests bring God to the people and then bring the people to God. They're, they're middle men. They're what Moses does with Israel. Like, this is what God says. And God, the people are angry and they sin. Like this back and forth thing. The priests live in the presence of God for those who can't or those who aren't. And bring them there. So what the priest then is, is the embodiment of the rule of God over the earth. 
The priest brings that to people who don't know that yet, who've not seen it. So a priest is not all about saying the right words and getting the four spiritual laws down and getting people to convert by conversation. That's great when it can happen. But the priest's primary role is to carry the presence of God with them to people who don't have it. Now, the question might be, how is Israel supposed to do this? That's where the Ten Commandments come in. We miss the Ten Commandments and their power because we often think of them as law. That's what we have used for, since the Protestant Reformation, basically, we've been translating and using the word law. Um, A lot of the reformers were lawyers, so it made sense for them to see it in that way. But what Israel actually called the law, it's a Hebrew word called Torah, and Torah means instruction. To Israel, this was God's instruction for how to live. More specifically, it's instruction for how to be priests. It's a big task and a big calling. How shall we do this? Now, what God does not do is give him a church planting strategy for how to get 2,000 plus people in your doors each week. Nor does he give them, um, okay, so these are um, the laws, and if you keep them, then you'll get into heaven. He's not doing that. He's saying, here is how to be priests. This is why I'm giving you my instruction. So let's look at them. Let's look at these instructions in which the Ten Commandments, also misnamed because in Hebrew it's the Ten Words. (laughs) So let's see what these Ten Words tell them about being priests. So go to chapter 20 now, verse 1. This is So between what we read and now, uh, Moses just goes up and down three times and kind of tells the people, don't touch the mountain, don't come close, you'll get killed, like this is a holy place. And so he just kind of lays down the boundaries for them. Then chapter 20, God's sermon starts. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God. I am the I am who I am. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? Now, I say the Ten Commandments, and you instantly launch into the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't miss these introductory words. This is why I'm giving you ten words or ten commands. I want you to be my priests, yes, And I want you to remember that you were slaves and I freed you. So if you don't want to go back into slavery, if you don't want to be mastered by things in the world and victim to your own desires and pleasures, then listen to this way of life because this is the way of liberty. Which James says in James chapter 1, the man who studies the perfect law of liberty See, we think of the law and the Ten Commandments as very restrictive. And God was like, do this and do this and don't do this and don't do that. But what God's really doing is he's inviting Israel to be priests to the world, to be the embodiment of his goodness to the world and saying, hey, here are some simple steps to do that so that you don't become re-enslaved and that you have purpose. Because liberating a slave is not enough. A slave who's liberated has no purpose. They don't know how to live because they haven't lived. They've lived for years and years by the whip. The whip told them what to do. The taskmaster told them what to do. They're now free and independent. They don't know how to think for themselves. 
When people are liberated from the mastery of sin, they need to have direction. They need not just to know I'm free, but to have purpose. And this is why I'm alive. That's the difference between wilderness and promised land. Wilderness Christians are people who are free, but they don't even know where they are in the wilderness. They might be wandering it for 40 years or for your whole life. But the one who lives in the promised land and is fruitful and prosperous is there because they had direction and purpose. And this is what God's doing with us. I'm not giving you 10 steps to get to heaven. I'm giving you 10 reasons to have purpose and how to embody my goodness to people around you. So, <clears throat> I freed you. Now, listen to them. Verse 3 is the first. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, it's not my purpose tonight to exposit all of these, so we're just going to take them as they are. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself carved a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, meaning he wants them, <laughs> visiting the iniquities of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who, of those who love me and keep my commandments. So first, don't have any other gods before me which obviously was normal in Egypt. Second, don't make any carved image like the golden calf they're going to make next week when Pastor Mike shows us. And then third, the third command is in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Yahweh, the Lord, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, you can apply that, sure, to cussing and cursing and swearing, but he's actually just saying, don't use my name to have a power trip over people. Like, well, if... If God really loved you, you'd do this. Or, I mean, uh, if you really love God, you would do this. And people use the name of God to make people do stupid things. That's using God's name in vain. The fourth command, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. And on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So you shall rest. Look, this is not just a command for you, but for the rest of the world too. Your servants need rest. Well, we don't have servants, but if you employ people, they need rest. Um, everything we do uh, is draining resources from the earth. We need to give the earth a rest, right? God is caring about his humans and his creation, and he's commanding to rest. Uh, I said I wasn't going to expound, so I'm going to gotta keep going. <laughs> Verse 5. So the first four are about God, our relationship to God, which is unique, and that's the starting place. So if you want liberty, you need to understand how to love me and worship me. Then we transition to the last six, which are about how to deal with neighbor. We love God and we learn to love neighbor that way. And loving God and loving neighbor is the way into liberty and the way of having purpose and being a priest, an embodiment of the goodness of God to the world around us. So here are the next six. Uh, verse 12 is the fifth command. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. 13, number six. You shall not murder. 
Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Think slander. And number 10, you shall not covet or lust for your neighbor's house. You shall not covet or lust for your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. There you have it. So I'm calling you, Israel. I freed you. I'm calling you to be my personal story, my personal embodiment to the rest of the world so you can draw them to me. Here are 10 words for you to put into practice. This is what it looks like when I'm in charge. These 10 words. Beautiful, a society that lives by that. And then we see Israel's reaction to this call. (laughs) In verse 18. Now, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Okay, they didn't die. He just spoke to them ten words. They didn't die. They're being a little dramatic. So if this is hyperbole, right? They're not going to die if God keeps speaking. But they feel in their soul, their timbers are shaking. Right? They're quivering in their boots. That happens when you hear the voice of God. You know, you might be in Bible study in a sermon, it just feels like it's normal, and all of a sudden, bam! It hits you between the eyes or right in the gut or in the heart. And sometimes that's not a pleasant feeling when the voice of God pierces in like that. Sometimes we resist it and we push it aside. Sometimes we say, yeah, I would rather do Bible study because I don't have to deal with that man's voice. Some of us think that way about God. That man upstairs. I don't want to deal with that voice commanding me. It's not the way we want to be. It's the way Moses, uh, it's the way Israel was. We see next week with the golden calf. What resulted of this? Man, brothers and sisters, dangerous is the day when you decide that you want Moses to speak for God for you rather than to hear the voice of God himself. And if we don't become students of the voice of God, and just instead we're students of Bible study and the word of God, and we analyze these words and we get the meanings down, look, that's good. It's good to memorize passages and promises. Those are there, and we should know our Bibles. But if all we do is study the word of God and ignore the voice of God, we will commit the error of Israel. And we will be relying upon someone's commentary. Or you think you're studying the Bible. You're, you're, you're reading a translation of the original language. You're relying on all these tools and things. And people like me or Pastor Mike or someone else, that is not the same thing as the voice of God. Now, sometimes I might get it, um, or God might choose to use me. And teaching will become preaching when the voice of God is heard from the word of God. But tragic is the day when we say, oh no, I just go through people now. I just want to hear from safe Bible studies and from uh, teachers who are more interested in dictionary definitions because then I know God can't really get to me through that. Or one of the other methods that kind of can annoy us. So when Jesus comes to earth, we see something really interesting. 
He's born, like Moses, under a king trying to kill him. He narrowly escapes, like Moses, down the Nile River. Jesus is taken to Egypt. Moses brings Israel out of Egypt. Jesus is brought out of Egypt by his parents. He settles up in Nazareth. And there, he then visit, when he grows up, he visits the wilderness, as Israel was in the wilderness, and meets John the Baptist, who was in the wilderness, baptizing Israel through the Jordan River and into the land that God promised to them. And so all these baptizees are following the same journey ancient Israel did from the wilderness through the Jordan River into the promised land. And so Jesus follows this path. Jesus also is tested in the wilderness for 40 days, the same number as the 40 years which Israel will eventually be lost in the wilderness. And then after Jesus does all of that, clearly saying, I am embodying Israel, I here am fixing what they couldn't get right, he then does one more climatic action. He climbs up, Matthew 5 tells us, he climbs up a mountain, as did Moses. He climbs up a mountain, and there begins to give Israel the word of God. Just like Moses. And then, he, of course, he lives his life. He's crucified. He is raised from the dead. He calls his disciples to him, Matthew 28, again on a mountain. And there tells them, Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you. What do we see happening here? We see Jesus doing exactly what God is doing and Moses are doing here in Exodus, climbing up mountains to make the statement, I am giving you now the real, the new, the true, the better law. I'm giving you a new revelation on it, a new way to live it. I am calling my disciples to be disciple makers. This is just another way of saying priests. I am calling you who've been following me to go and teach others what I have taught you. I'm calling you to go and be the embodiment of everything that Jesus is to other people so that they can then see and learn and come to the God who saves Jesus is calling us exactly where we are. Israel is here in Exodus. As they come to the mountain, they receive the word of God. They're sent. We too are sent. We're meant to hear the word of God for the sole purpose of getting purpose. To hear that God is saying, this is what I'm calling you to do. Whatever your priesthood looks like, you're taking his his love and presence and goodness to other people. I'm asking you to do that, and here are some ways to do it. And sometimes we get so lost using the Bible in so many different ways that we lose the simplicity of here's why we exist and here is some help on the way. And this should be what we're about as we gather around the Bible every single week. Some of you are double dipping tonight, so it's your second time this week. And some of you go to midweek services, so it's your third time. That's a lot of responsibility All fine. All fine if we nail the word of God. We nail the purpose he's calling us to. And we understand totally how it's telling us to do that. But sometimes that's not the right place. 
Because the voice of God needs to shake us. The voice of God must birth something new in us. The voice of God must show us how to do it specifically in this context of this person. Brothers and sisters, the people we reach out to are not projects. They're not projects to win or accomplish. And when we try to reduce the Bible into a formula of how, oh yeah, yeah, cool, we're priests, and we're going to go do this thing because this is how the Bible tells us to do it, we're just treating people like a hunter treats ducks. Just something to get, something to shoot at, somebody to say, we did it. This is, this is immaturity. This is the ego that high schoolers are trying to learn to outgrow. The ego we need when we're young. People, we have Christians who still live in this young ego who want to prove that they're great and make themselves feel better and like, yeah, we're the best people because we saved these people. This is not the right way to go about it. And the voice of God is the only thing. Because you can read over and over, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and it's God's work and it's all grace. And we can read that over and over, but it doesn't get to the heart until the word becomes a voice. We need to hear the voice of God. So sermons can be empty, dull, draining. Bible study can be the same when all we're hearing are echoes of what God once said. But there needs to be time for us to let the echoes fade and let the fresh voice be spoken and heard. Psalm 29 is a wonderful psalm. Nine times it says this phrase, the voice of the Lord. And it goes on to tell you what happens with the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord causes the cedars of Lebanon to shudder. The voice of the, I'm just naming some of my favorite highlights. The voice of the Lord strips the forests bare. The voice of the Lord causes the deer to give birth. I like that. That either means God speaks and the deer's like, oh my gosh, whoa, look what came out. Or it means that the voice of the Lord is that energizing, life-giving presence, moving, humming, vibrating through us and around us throughout the universe. The voice of the Lord. Powerful. Have you heard it? Now, we hear powerful, and we know we want to turn on a um, really good show that's got, you know, with all the cliffhangers. And like, well, I got to binge watch this now because it always ends at the time I say, wait, I need to know. And, you know, we want power, we want explosions, we want, like, good character, good dramatization, good uh, pyrotechnics, good... We just want, like, all these things. We want power in America. We want to see presidents taking charge. We want to see our enemies squashed by our Navy SEALs. We want to see... We want to see power. Like, in America, power is just, ooh, it impacts. Wow. But the power of the voice of God is so seductive. It is so subversive. It is so silent. It's so stealthy that you don't know that you've been floored by it until it's too late. It will completely reduce a strong man to tears. And uh, it will just break people, men and women, wondering, how have I lived this way all my life once the voice of God is heard voice of God is powerful. John 10, verse 27, Jesus tells the people whom he's talking to, a lot of Pharisees who are grumbling about him, he tells them, hey, my sheep 
know my voice. The Pharisees know the Bible. They know the word of God. They can recite. You tell me a verse, I can tell you the one before and after it. That is literally how Pharisees are. They know the scriptures. They know the word of God. They've studied that in detail. But do you know my voice? Jesus asks. Do you know my voice? My sheep don't know my word. They know my voice. Blessed is the one in here who hears God speak and doesn't know anything about the Bible. More so than the one who knows everything about the Bible but never hears God speak. I would wish it was both. That would be best. Okay, so the voice of God is powerful. The voice of God comes out of the Word of God. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to know the Word of God, so when you hear things, you're like, oh, that's uh, not God, <laughs> or that is God. The Word can kind of teach us that. But look, this is what I'm talking about with the voice of God. We're not talking about little... Some people say they hear this. That's great. I don't. I'm not like, whoa, did you hear that vibrato? The, t- the timber of his voice? Is that the word? Tremor of his voice? Did you hear that? Ooh, it was deep, like a, like a manly man with broad shoulders. I mean, maybe if that happens to you. So I'm not talking about this audible, like, whoa, that's the voice. I mean, there comes a moment when you just know that God is somehow speaking, like Elijah heard in that still, small voice. And you almost have to wonder, was that my own thought? Was that the pizza I had, or was that God? But see, this is why we miss it. Because Americans are into flashy and powerful and things that catch our eye and things that immediately wow us. God doesn't move that way. If Jesus talks a lot about seeds and sowers and the growth and the harvest and the, and the uh, mustard seed and things like this, like Jesus was all about this slow, it's going to happen. Right? A mighty trunk started as a little seed. That's Jesus. Americans are more like, just show us the Niagara Falls and then we'll be impressed. We just want it now. This is why we miss it. So there's this quote by Thomas Keating. Uh, He says, Silence is God's primary language. Silence is God's primary language. Everything else is a poor translation. I am a poor translation. Hey, English Standard Version, New King James Version, New Living Version, the message, what have you, is a poor translation. doesn't matter who's preaching, what book you are reading, what scholar said what. It's all a poor translation in comparison to the primary language of God, which is silence. Now, how can we ever hear that with our lifestyles as Americans? Where do we make room for that? And that's why for Brittany and I, Montana was the most healing week we've ever had. It was silent. Oh, yes, there were deer and elk and moose doing their, like, calls out there and owls and all those sounds. Yes, that was there. Yes, the cars on the highway, just not too far off from our room. Yes, that was there. But I could care less about my phone that week. And we didn't watch TV. 
And I didn't have the competition of other people around me showing me what they accomplished while I didn't accomplish anything. I didn't care about that anymore. There was one thing that mattered. The voice of God was there. And we felt it. And it gave us life. And we heard it. What did he say? I can't really tell you. And you will know this. You will know this when you talk to people who have heard God's voice. They have a hard time putting it into words. You just know it's happened. But we have to turn life down a little bit. God has Israel at Sinai for a year. For a year they stop here by design. They needed to slow down. They needed to hear. Of course, they reject it. Are we making space? Are we allowing silence to be the way God speaks to us? You might be asking, how? How do I do that? It is hard. Look, there are times when I'm like feeling like, yeah, I'm in tune with the Spirit, and like I'm doing really well. And then there are times when I feel like I'm just reacting to everything that's coming to me, and I don't even, I'm like, oh my gosh, it, it's Sunday morning, and I still don't have the main point of my message. What is going on? And like, you're just stressing and stressing, like, ah, I can't do it. <laughs> like, this happens. But there is a voice that's speaking if we're willing to turn the noise down and tune in. Now, you're going to try this. You are. You're going to try to hear the voice of God. And what you're going to find is there's a lot of noise when all the noise is turned off. It's still there. This is why it's very hard. And people give up. It takes time to learn what silence sounds like. Because echoes keep on repeating until they gradually die down. You will be in silence and you're going to still hear the words of that person that really buzzed you the wrong way. Or you're going to be thinking about the project that should have been done last week and how you're losing status among your other colleagues because you don't have it done yet. Or you're going to suddenly have that thought about, ah, oh, I totally forgot to do that for my kids. I'll get that done as soon as I'm done. And you, before you know it, silence becomes your planning moment. <laughs> or it becomes assessing yourself and everybody else. Like, okay, that's going to happen. Because there is a lot of, there's a lot of voice around us. There's a lot of voice in here criticisms and questions and doubts, these have to be turned off too. And the only way to turn it off, it's not like you can just magically go and it's off. It takes time for echoes to die. And then the voice, it's there, whispering so gently. And you will leave, and you won't even know exactly what it said. You'll just know God was speaking. Occasionally you do, but most of the time, it's just going to be this. It's like when Jesus wakes up from the back of the boat, it says, peace, be still, and it was calm. In fact, I wonder if the disciples even heard him say that. It was loud, perhaps. There's, Peter was probably shrieking loud enough that everyone heard only that. I mean, I don't know. We don't know, of course. Maybe they did hear it, but the point is that it just became quiet, like and that's when, that's when, the stillness was when they said, this is no ordinary man. So you're going to have to find what works for you. But we need, desperately in this day and age, of reactionary politics and Christianity reacting to this and that. We need people who are willing to find silence and hear what the voice of God is saying for today. 
We keep quoting scriptures, which is great because it's our base, but sometimes we misuse them. We need the voice now, here. And maybe there'd be less idols, less golden calves, less uh, jockeying for position amongst one another, less trampling people. And sometimes we trample people and we don't even know we do because we're unaware. But the voice of God gets us in tune with everything. Everything comes into better focus. So, are you willing? Are you going to try? Are you going to seek ways to turn the volume down? And when nothing happens, to do it again and again and again, because it's in the process that finally the echoes die, and then the voice is there. Brothers and sisters, we need this more. I almost said at the beginning that this is my most important message I can give you this year. And maybe it is, but I don't know. I didn't say the best, but important. May God speak to you this week. And I know we don't have the screen. I usually come up with what I think are clever titles. <laughs> I think they are. <laughs> uh, may his voice be with you. I was so lost in this text. I was going to talk about preaching the Bible, like how all these things work, and I had no clue what I was doing. Um, and then I heard Brittany jokingly say to a friend upstairs, just heard her shout, May the force be with you. And all of a sudden, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's what we need. May his voice be with us. May his voice be with you. That is the true force.